0: 1 John chapter 2, uh, we're going to start in verse number 1 and read down through uh, verse number 5. Uh, verse 2 is really what we're going to focus on uh, today, um, but we'll read the whole, the whole p- passages uh, one, of one verse 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, starting verse number 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, you have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. Pause for just a second. John's writing verse number one, it tells you, I'm writing to you so that you would stay away from sin. Not that you would never sin again. John knows that that's not possible. Uh, He even goes on later to say, if any man has say that he doesn't have sin, he's a liar. So John's not saying that we shouldn't ever sin again. He's saying that you and I should keep ourselves away from sin, walk in holiness and righteousness. Here's a great promise. But if you don't, and you fail, remember that you have an advocate with the Father, who is Christ Jesus the righteous. Verse number two. And he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verses three and four are really important for us as well. This is all introductory. This doesn't have to to do with today's message, but I can't just skip over these verses because they're good. Verses 3 and 4 tell us this. If you say that you know God and you love God, you will obey his commandments. Verse number 3. It's important to note that in the Bible, emotion and love are not the same thing. Love is always directly connected with obedience in the Bible. If you love God, you'll do what God says. And he goes so far in verse number four that if you say that you know God and don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So again, you can't say, I know God, I just don't do what he says because if you really knew God, you would actually do what God says. Verse number uh, five. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Verse number six says that if you call yourself a Christian, you need to walk and talk the way that Jesus walked and talked. So much good stuff there. I remember when my son uh, Thatcher was in kindergarten. Uh, he had needed some money to take to school for the Santa's Secret Shop. And the Santa Secret Shop was basically a, a flea market of a bunch of junk that somebody got off the internet somewhere by the, the caseload. And kids would take money and they would buy presents for their, their family and then take them home uh, and give them at Christmas time. And so we gave Thatcher, I think it was like $20 or something, to buy Christmas gifts for the whole family and for his grandparents and stuff like that. And so he went to school, bought a bunch of stuff, and he came home. That day he says, you guys got to open these right now because they're that good. And she's like, no, but we got to wait till Christmas and we'll exchange gifts on Christmas. No, no, you got to open it today. It's too good. It can't wait until Christmas. That's part of the fun of Christmas is you have to wait. And he was just, like, oh. And so every day he's like, is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? Not because he wanted his presents, because he wanted us to unwrap ours. And so, man, that, first, uh, that, that, that Christmas uh, morning came, and we read from Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, family tradition for us. He said, okay, it's time to open presents. You guys got to open yours first. He's like, no, you go first. We'll open. No. He refused. You got to open your presents. They're so good. And so uh, Angela goes first, and she opens it up, and it's like some bracelet with a bunch of jewels on it that looks like it'll barely clasp, and the clasp is almost broken on it. But uh, she's like, oh, this is beautiful. I can't wait to wear this. And so he's like, Dad, yours is the good one. All right, I'm ready, bud. I'm ready. And so he's just like sitting there, like rubbing his legs, like waiting for me to open it, like I open it, and I lift it up, and it's a necklace. And it's like a really, really thin, like silver chain that it's like, you popped it too hard, it would snap. And on this is an American bald eagle with its wings spread. And it's not like a small one. It's like the size of like a half dollar, right? And I was just like, dude, I love it. He goes, I knew it. I knew you would love it. I knew it. I told my teacher at school, my dad is going to love this. You're, I love this. This is amazing. Put it on. Oh, I, absolutely, I can't wait to put it on. And so I put it on, I wore it all Christmas morning, and Angela goes, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> it's like, I have no idea, because you can't tell the kid, like, oh, it's really kind of hokey uh, for a man to wear a bald, like. and like, why would you look at me and think I would love a bald eagle with his wings spread? Like, I love America as much as anybody else, and I don't wear, wear a bald eagle. But anyways, uh, that's the thought of a five-year-old, right? But uh, I think what I did was I wore it, and I told him, I think the chain broke, and I have to get it fixed. And so I'm waiting because I got it in a special box and I don't ever know what actually happened with it. But have you ever gotten something on Christmas morning and you open it up and you're like, thank you. What am I supposed to do with this? Like, you look at it and you're like, I, I get that the thought behind it, I don't really know what it means or, or what I'm supposed to do with it. I think if I told you that Jesus got you for Christmas propitiation, you'd be like, thank you. That's so nice. What do I do with it? Because propitiation is one of those words we find in the Bible three times, the the actual word propitiation. But it's one of those things that I don't think most of us look at that and go, oh, wow, what a great, rich Bible word. It's probably one of those words that you think to yourself, really smart Bible people know that word, so I'm just going to skip that because I'm not really smart Bible people. But here's the thing. Propitiation is a gift. Oh, it's so good that when you realize how good it is, you'll wonder how did I ever skip that to begin with? Now, I also want to caution you with this. When you come up against words that you don't necessarily know in the Bible, or you think you might have a fuzzy idea what it means, look it up in the dictionary. Because propitiation is a really, really good Bible word. And you might even need to go a step further and look it up in maybe a Bible dictionary or a Bible thesaurus. Uh, If you don't have one of those, you can download those to your phone. Really, really easy uh, to get. But the word propitiation is a rich, rich Bible word. And propitiation uh, through the death of Christ is one of the critical doctrines in all of the Bible. It is at the very center of God's redemptive plan for mankind. So we would say that the Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, is the story of Jesus Christ and how God set out from the beginning of time to redeem the soul of man. That's what the Bible is. The Bible isn't a collection of stories. The Bible isn't a book of fables. The Bible isn't just a book of really good leadership lessons or uh, principles for life. The Bible is the story of Jesus Christ. And it tells us what that means to us. And at the very center of God's redemptive plan is the propitiation that's provided by the death of Jesus Christ. So again, it's going to take us a while to unpack this because it's really, really good, but I don't want you to miss it. Now, depending on the English translation of the Bible that you're using this morning, you may or may not have that word propitiation. Uh, Some Bible versions use the word atoning sacrifice. Uh, The majority of English translations will actually use the word propitiation. And let me just say this again. We don't need to dumb down the Bible using words that are easier for us. We just need to understand what the Bible means. Uh, When uh, I'm in the hospital with my daughter and the doctor comes in the room and says, hey, uh, we got this, this, and this test running. Hey, tell me what that means. Hey, explain that to me. And I begin to learn a lot of things about blood clots and and carotid arteries and how the the blood flows through the the body and how the blood flows up and down and different things do different things and stuff like that and how the blood reroutes itself when it finds blood clots and times that you do want to break down blood clots and times that you don't. And I'm basically at this point like a hematologist at this point. So um, because I ask a lot of questions. I don't want the doctor to come in and say, Oh, you know, her blood's kind of plugged up, kind of like your toilet gets plugged up sometimes. Ha, ha, ha. No, tell me in medical terms what's going on. You and I are way too old at this point to dumb down the Bible. We need to know what the Bible says. And if you're a Christian, you should also be a theologian. You should study the Bible and know God's Word. And so when it comes to words like propitiation, you can't afford to just skip over it. You can't afford to get a Bible version that uses smaller words so that you don't have to attack big Bible words. We need to just need to dig into it. And today we're going to dig into the word propitiation. Propitiation with it carries the idea of covering sin and turning away God's wrath. So propitiation does two things for us. It covers our sin and it turns away the wrath of God. Now, today is kind of a study, I guess you will, in soteriology. The soteriology is the study of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soter, which means soul or salvation of the soul. And so if you want to, again, dig in deep, you can get a book on soteriology that talks about salvation and it's going to cover uh, things like justification and sanctification and uh, redemption and reconciliation and, and propitiation. All those are really good Bible terms. Sometimes, again, the word uh, propitiation gets switched out in some English translations for the word atonement. It means a similar thing, but not the same. Uh, atonement carries the idea of making peace with God, that the sacrifice that Jesus made allowed you and I to have peace with God by making a payment on our behalf. And so from that aspect, propitiation is similar to atonement, but they're not exactly the same thing. Atonement is, uh, carries a different connotation with it as well. You also, as you're researching propitiation, might come across the word expiation. Expiation is uh, not in the Bible. It's a theological term uh, that we talk about the turning away of God's wrath. And so it's very similar in the same way to propitiation. But propitiation gives us two gifts. It covers our sin and it turns away the wrath of God. Now, that's really important because the wrath of God is a real, actual, biblical truth. Majority of pulpits in America today skirt the idea of the wrath of God because it's not popular. Nobody likes to hear that God is angry with sin and God is going to punish sin. It's just not popular to talk about. You know what is popular? God is love. God loves you right where you are, just how you are. You don't have to change. If you're a wicked awful sinner. God made you that way, and you just need to embrace who you are. That is a very uh, warming message from a fleshly, carnal perspective, but that's not the truth. God is love. That is a true statement, but it's only part of who God is. God's much more than just love. God is love, but God is also justice. God is gracious, but God is also wrath, God is merciful, but God also punishes. And so we can't put God in a box and say that God is just love. The Bible tells us God is love. The Bible says that God embodies love. God is love. It's not something that God does, it's who God is. God is love. But God is also righteous, God is also holy, God is also, again, justice. And so propitiation and wrath have to factor into the equation as far as who God is. And God is a God of wrath against sin. Now sin is anything that that violates God's law. God originally gave mankind ten commandments. Gave them to Moses. And you and I have broken all ten of them. We couldn't keep them if we wanted to. Because our heart is sinful at its core, at its nature. We break God's rules all the time, many times, without even thinking about it. And because of that, that puts us in danger of God's punishment. Think about it this way. Imagine that God had a law, but if you broke the law, there weren't really any consequences. Imagine that we have, mankind has a law. That when you break the law, there's no consequences. You can drive 85 miles an hour on the freeway, you get pulled over by a police officer, and he just says, slow it down, and sends you on your way. No consequences. You can break into someone's house and take something that doesn't belong to you, and they say, hey, stop, and you say, no thanks, and they say, okay, go on about your way. No consequences at all. You look and you go, well, you can't live like that with no consequences. I, uh, I'll confess my sin before you because I already confessed it before the Lord today. I went to Safeway um, this past week. My wife needed to get, get some stuff from the store on Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon at the Safeway on Baratania was an absolute mad house. I don't know what was going on there, but it was crazy. And so I'm circling the parking lot like, like it's Christmas Eve looking for somebody to pull out of their parking spot. Nobody would. And like people would like walk to their car and they would like wave you off. Like, I'm going back into Safeway to get more stuff. I don't know what what in the world was going on there. But here's what I did. I circled, 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 and the only two spots in the entire parking lot were for electric vehicle charging. I was not driving an electric vehicle, and I pulled in that spot and I put it in park. And here's the thing: the lady that worked security, she had like a little pad out there and she was like looking around and stuff like that. You know what I thought to myself? You're not a real police officer. There's no consequences for that. I don't know what you're going to write on your pad, but it has no bearing on my life, right? And so I went in and got my stuff that I needed and I left. And I I confessed it to the Lord. I was wrong to do that. I get it. But I looked, I saw a security over there. I saw her with her pad. I thought to myself, there's no real consequences for a non-EV parking in an EV parking spot in a private parking lot, So guess what? I decided that the rules didn't apply to me. Now, was that wrong? 100% wrong. And again, that's why I legitimately say that, that that was wrong of me to do. But if there's no consequences for the law, is it really a law? If God says, thou shalt not steal, but we steal, and God says, that's okay, I knew you were gonna do it, but I choose to love you anyways. Is that really a law? Or is it more of a suggestion? And so God, because He is just, requires that the law be kept, and when it's not kept, that there's consequences. Again, uh, one time I found myself in a court of law for speeding, I had a speeding ticket. That's one of those you couldn't just sit in, you had to actually appear before a judge. And so I went to court. The judge asked me, Mr. King, says here you're speeding. What was going on? Your Honor, I'm just gonna tell you the truth. I was driving. I looked up and saw a speed limit sign. I realized I was over and there was already blue lights in my rearview mirror. I, I was 100% wrong. Okay, Mr. King, uh, we're gonna dismiss the charges against you. Please see the cashier on your way out. Boom, dismissed, let's go. What, what is that last part you said? See the cashier. So we'll walk by the cashier. Oh, you gotta pay your court fees, which were $275, just for the court fee. Then you gotta pay the clerk fee, which is $35. Then you got to pay the state of California fee, which is another $28. Then you got to pay the Water Act of 1792, 35 cents for that. And like all these fees. I was like 300 and something bucks by the time I got out of there. It's just like, I thought it was dismissed, but I still had charges I had to pay. But can you imagine a judge that everything that came across his desk. He was just dismissed, 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 dismissed. Oh, you broke into somebody's house? Dismissed. Oh, you killed somebody? Dismissed. Oh, you got a DUI? Dismissed. You'd say, hey, wait a minute, where's the justice here? We want people held accountable for what they do wrong because our own heart requires justice. God, by the same token, you break his law, there must be consequences to be paid. And the consequences when we break God's law are his wrath and his punishment. Now, when it comes to God's wrath, God's wrath is his settled opposition of his holy nature against everything that's evil. It's important to understand that God's wrath is not just him being a grumpy old man. That God's wrath is not somebody who just has a bad attitude or a chip on their shoulder. God hates sin. Hates. Strong word. Strong emotion that God has towards sin. God hates sin. And because of that, God has determined That every fiber of his being is dedicated to defeating evil. And so God, his response to sin, evil, is always punishment, anger, and wrath. Always. Now it's important to note that there are several times throughout the Bible that we hear of God's wrath being poured out upon all mankind. First time that we see God's wrath poured out in judgment was the worldwide flood, the book of Genesis. God told Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth because everybody has sinned against me and they refuse to repent. Gather everybody who will will repent into the ark with you. Nobody came but Noah's family. And God destroyed the world. That was his wrath. He had already determined his response to evil was destruction and punishment. He did it. The next time we see in scripture that God's wrath was poured out for the sins of mankind was on the cross. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly sinless life. And he went to the cross. And the Bible says, He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Here's the, the big idea. And If you get nothing else out of today's message, you get this. You've broken God's law and you deserve punishment. I've broken God's law. I deserve punishment. But Jesus took my sin and yours upon him, And he went to the cross, he was crucified, he bled, he died in our place as payment for our sin. And as he took upon himself our sin, God poured out all of his wrath and punishment on Jesus Christ on the cross. So much that the earth went black for hours while Jesus hung upon the cross. God's wrath was poured out to Jesus Christ to the degree that he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because remember, God has already settled against evil and sin and it must be punished and he punished Jesus in our place. And so Jesus, while he hung upon the cross, endured not only intense physical pain, we get our English word excruciating to describe difficult pain the word excruciating literally means from the cross. That's where we get the word from. So the physical pain that Jesus endured was intense. No doubt about it. But please understand that we don't celebrate Christ's crucifixion because it was difficult physically speaking. In case you forgot, there were two other guys that got crucified the same day that nobody celebrates them. That history tells us under the rule of Nero that thousands of Christians would be crucified. So the actual physical act of crucifixion, while heinous while humiliating, was not the worst that Jesus endured. It was the wrath of God poured out upon him for the sins of of mankind. Jesus' greatest thing that he endured was our suffering for sin. And so, sometimes people think of God's wrath like it was just kind of an Old Testament thing. No, God's wrath is a biblical thing. God's wrath will be poured out Also, during the time of great tribulation, after the rapture of the church and Christians are taken to heaven, the earth will be full of unbelievers and God's wrath and punishment will be poured out upon mankind because everyone left here will be the enemies of God. We find that in the book of Revelation. Then God's wrath will be poured out for all of eternity in a place called hell, which is where everyone deserves to go. But only those that will go there will go there because they did not receive Jesus as Savior And so those are the four times we find in the Bible about God's wrath being poured out in mass. But sometimes people look and they go, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he was wiping out whole cities at a time, but the God of the New Testament is more love and grace. And so I like the God of the New Testament better than the God of the Old Testament. (laughs) Same God. Same propensity towards wrath. Same ability to give grace. And so you'll find the God of the Old Testament giving grace and being merciful and being compassionate. You find the God of the New Testament also pouring out wrath upon sin. And so, same God, there's not a, a split personality that God has where one's righteous and, 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 and wrathful and the other one is gracious and kind. They're, they're both the same God. And so, the wrath of God this is the beautiful thing about it lest you think that God is up in heaven with a, a belt sitting there smacking his hand, waiting for you to get out of line. God's got lightning bolts in each hand is waiting to throw them your way. That's not the God of the Bible. God's wrath is perfectly in balance with three other divine qualities that he has. His forbearance, his love, and his readiness to forgive. And this offsets God's wrath so that he's not just this angry old codger up there that can't wait to strike people down. I love when the Bible speaks about the fact that God is forbearing in his wrath. My wife and I, when we first got married, um, we didn't, go through any type of premarital counseling. We didn't really talk about what marriage would look, look like. Uh, we, we dated for about three months. Uh, we got engaged, and we got married about a month and a half later. And so I don't recommend that timeline. God was very gracious to us and has allowed it to work, but I recommend people dig in a little bit deeper before they get married. But we had no premarital counseling. We didn't talk about a budget. She didn't know how much money I made. She didn't know how much money I had in savings. <laughs> little did she know, I had like 200 bucks to my name when we got married, like no money in savings. Like she didn't had no clues to what she was getting into. And so we decide probably, I don't know, three months into our marriage, we should probably sit down and do a budget and figure out how much money we got coming in, how much money we got going out. And so we sit down and, and, and we start going through our bills. And she's like, oh yeah, I got some student loans. Why didn't you tell me that before we got married? I don't know. Why didn't you ask before we got married? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. And so, uh, okay, well, let's figure that out. And so we began to look at, at what I make. And I was at E5 at the time that had blown all of my money, all of it, like overextended on everything under the sun. And I said, we can't afford your student loans. And she said, well, I can apply for student loan forbearance. What is that? They basically hit pause on your student loans and allow you to get your stuff together, but you've got to pay it later. And all I heard was pay later. (laughs) Let's take that option. And so the idea was, you don't have to pay right now. You will have to pay one day. And when you do, you'll have to pay everything that you owe. But here's the crazy thing about forbearance in student loans and with God. Your student loans, while you don't have to make a pay rent right now, continue to accrue, somebody help me, interest. God's wrath doesn't just hit pause and then he just kind of waits out the wrath thing. God's wrath continues to accrue as you continue to sin against God. He's forbearing. He's holding it back. But know this, he's going to give you a minute to get your stuff together, but you will pay for what you've done wrong. God is forbearing in his wrath. He's given you an opportunity to get it together. But know this, the clock is still ticking on your sinful condition. But God is also loving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, Jesus, would not perish but have everlasting life. God knows you could never possibly be good enough to pay for your sin. God doesn't want you to go to hell to pay for your sin. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants you to be forgiven. All you have to do is say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that there's no other way to heaven other than Jesus. And I ask him today to forgive me of my sins and save me. And the moment that you do, he has promised to save you to the uttermost, the Bible said. Faith and repentance is all you need, and God is so ready to forgive. And the moment that you seek God's forgiveness, you know what happens? The Bible says He takes your sin, and He casts it as far as the east is from the west, and He remembers it no more. That all of our iniquities and transgressions, the Bible says, are cast into the depths of the sea. Like it's over and done with and settled with God. All you have to do is believe and repent. And so if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, You need to put your faith in Jesus as your only hope that you have for this life and the next and ask for the forgiveness of sins and God is so ready to forgive. And so lest people get the idea that God delights in wrath, the Bible says that God doesn't even delight in the death of the wicked. God's not a God that enjoys chaos and destruction. That's in opposition to who he is and his nature God is ready to forgive. God is a loving, merciful, compassionate, and he's holding back his wrath for as long as he possibly can. And so that makes God not this angry old dude up in the sky, but it makes him a loving father who's just waiting and giving you every single opportunity that you can possibly get to come to him. When we deny God's wrath, we cheapen the suffering of Jesus. Oh, God would never send anybody to hell. Well, then why did Jesus have to die? God's not really an angry God. He's loving and grace-filled. Well, then why was his son put to death? You can continue to live in your sin if you want to. God doesn't care. Then why have a law with no consequences? I read an article this past week that says when we tell people that their sin is okay, regardless of what their sin is, That is the anti-gospel. Because the gospel says your sin is going to be punished by God, but Jesus died in your place because of his love for you. And if you'd repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you can be saved. That's the gospel. The anti-gospel is you're okay in your sin. You don't have to change. God made you just the way you are. He loves you. That's a a lie, and it's the opposite of the gospel. Does God love you? For sure. But you need to put your faith in Him and repent, because your sin is not okay. Unless we ever get to the point that we think that God is soft on sin, just remember that your sin and mine is what put His only begotten Son to death, lest you think that God is soft on sin. So... Again, when we say that sin's not really that big of a deal, God's not an angry God, God doesn't uh, get mad at sin, or God doesn't judge sin. We cheapen the suffering of Christ, which is of immense value to you and I. Now we come back to the word propitiation. Propitiation is a covering for our sin. Again, you remember that propitiation carries the idea of a covering for sin and the turning away of God's wrath. The Greek word that's used in this passage of Scripture for the word propitiation is the the Greek word halosmos, which is another word also that's used for hilasterion, which is a a picture back to the Old Testament. And how people got saved or uh, became forgiven of their sins before Jesus Christ was they put their faith and trust in God and His Word. Same way that people have always been saved. Faith in God and His Word. And so the Old Testament the Jews were required to make atonement for their sins one day out of the year called the Day of Atonement. Jews to this day still still, uh, celebrate this feast called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Here's what would happen. The priest would take two lambs without blemish or spot. He would take them into the temple or the tabernacle, back into a room called the Holy of Holies where no one could possibly go except for the priest. If you tried to step foot across that, you would die. He goes back to the Holy of Holies with these two lambs without spot or blemish. Inside the Holy of Holies would be the Ark of the Covenant. I've got a photo of the Ark of the Covenant here. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat there, that that place between the two angels. And the idea with the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top is the first thing that would happen is that the priest would symbolically place the sins of the people on that mercy seat. Symbolically. All the sins of the people are placed here. Then he would take that first lamb without spot or blemish He would grab it by the hair of the head, take a knife, and slit its throat. The blood that was spilled out would be poured out upon that mercy seat, therefore covering the sins of the people with a sacrifice of a spotless lamb. Covered. Now, I can only imagine being a Jew in this time going like, Why do we do this once a year? Why is he the only guy that gets to go in there? What's the big deal with the the mercy seat? Why does it have to be a lamb without spot or blemish? Can't we just say that we're sorry? Can't we just try to do better? But you and I can look back at this and say, "Whoa. whoa, 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 this is huge. This mercy seat is on top of the Ark of the what? Covenant. That means an agreement that God has made with his people. So the Ark of the Covenant is already a picture of the agreement that God has made with his people. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was what? Does anybody remember? The Ten Commandments. God's law is inside that. And so the covenant that God made with his people, along with his law, had now been nullified or broken because of their sinful condition. And so the only way to make right what they have wronged is to cover it with a perfect Sacrifice. And the idea is that when God looks down upon the sins of his people, he no longer sees their sin because it is covered by the blood of the lamb that was slain for the sins of the people. The second lamb that was there would be taken and the sins again symbolically placed upon that lamb or goat. And that goat would then be sent out into the wilderness never to be seen again sometimes referred to as the escape goat, or where we get our word for scapegoat. Sins placed upon him, and he was ran off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And again, I can imagine being a Jew thinking to yourself like, well, that goat that ran away, can we get it back? Like, we could actually use that. No, no, no. This was all a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was both of those lambs that was one was slain and the other one took upon it the sins of all the people. Jesus Christ's blood was poured out over our sin, covering it so that when God looks at our sin, he no longer sees it, but he sees the blood of Christ in its place, and our sin placed upon the scapegoat so that it takes away our sin never to be seen ever again. What a beautiful picture and the uh word that was used for the covering of that sin propitiation so again when we look at the idea of propitiation it's the same way that folks for thousands of years have had their sins forgiven by being placed before God openly and honestly in in admission of breaking God's law and have them only covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and so propitiation provides a covering for that sin And so now God looks at that and says, this is a satisfactory payment. When Jesus Christ said, it is finished, the Father was pleased with that sacrifice and says, this is a satisfactory payment that has been made. And so again, if I were to give my one sentence definition of propitiation, a satisfactory payment that covers our sin and turns away the wrath of God. That would be the definition of propitiation. But it all goes back to the way that God's always been doing things. You break my law, you must pay the consequences because God's wrath will be poured out. Now, what do you think happens when the children of Israel decided they didn't really want to follow through with this anymore? They didn't really want to worship God the way you're supposed to. do. They didn't want to follow God's law. They didn't want to make atonement for their sin. What do you think happened to them? The wrath of God came. They were taken into slavery. They were, they were left out to die. They were defeated by other armies. Again, we see it God makes a way for them to make things right. God makes a way for you and I to make things right. And propitiation through Jesus means that Jesus' death upon the cross for the sins of all mankind put away God's wrath against his people once and for all. So, My sin is covered by the blood of Christ. God's wrath is no longer upon me. It's actually been deflected. God's wrath has been redirected. So while I was deserving of God's wrath, God's punishment, God's wrath and punishment came my way and it was redirected where? To the cross of Christ. God's wrath then was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ became the propitiation for our sins. Go back to 1 John 2, verse number 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. I needed a Savior. You did too. The world needs a Savior. And Jesus Christ is the only Savior propitiation for that. The only way that sin could be covered, the only way that wrath could be satisfied. If you look at the Garden of Eden from the very beginning of time when man and woman sinned against God, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit they weren't supposed to eat of. They realized they're naked. So what did they try to do? Somebody help me, what do they try to do? Cover themselves. Huh, how about that? How'd that work out? The Bible says they sewed together aprons of fig leaves. You know the problem with fig leaves? They shrivel up and die. And so the Bible says, God says, hey guys, where are you at? Adam says, we're hiding because we're naked. He says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of that fruit you weren't supposed to eat of? And God wasn't asking the question because he didn't know. God was asking the question so that they would be honest about where they've been and what they've done. And when they realized that they could not cover their own sin with their fig leaves, the Bible says that God made them coats of skin of an animal. Guess what? For God to cover their sin, something had to die. You couldn't just take fig leaves. So from the beginning of human history, when you sin against God... Something or someone has to die. And Jesus Christ became the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but the sins of the world. You see, Jesus was executed for my sins. Jesus was executed for your sins. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 53 in your Bible, if you would. This is... um, one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament because it's so powerful. Isaiah chapter 53. Mind you, Isaiah 53 was a prophecy. Isaiah was a prophet. He was prophesying the suffering of Christ hundreds of years before it would actually take place. Probably somewhere between 400 and 600 years before Christ would ever be born in that manger on that Christmas morning. Isaiah penned these words. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone into his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave of the wicked and the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse number 10 is a strange verse if you don't understand what it's saying. Verse number 10 Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, and thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Some people look at verse number 10 and said, well, that's sick that God could kill his own son and enjoy it. Like he was, it pleased the father to bruise him. That's just sick. And some secular philosophers who are anti-God and anti-Christ who said things like it's another form of cosmic child abuse that uh, God would torture his own son and get pleasure from it. But if you don't understand propitiation, you won't understand verse number 10. Because when it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him, it doesn't mean that God got enjoyment from it or pleasure from it. It meant that God was satisfied by the sacrifice that was made. From the beginning of time, there have always been sacrifices that God accepted and sacrifices that God rejected, always. Cain and Abel, one says, I'm going to kill an animal and offer it to God. And the other one says, I think I'll get some berries and some figs and God will be happy with that. God accepted one and rejected the other. When it comes to the sacrifice of Christ, God the Father says, I am satisfied with this payment. And that's what allowed Jesus Christ to say, it is finished. When he hung up on that cross, he said those words, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. Please understand, Jesus wasn't murdered. Jesus willingly gave up his life. He says, I lay down my life and I can take it back up again. Nobody takes my life. You couldn't kill God if you wanted to. But that sacrifice he made, it pleased the Father. And it was a satisfactory payment for my sin and yours. And verse number 11 goes on to say, He shall see the travail of his soul, everything that Jesus went through, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Oh, I, God saw the sacrifice of my Savior and said, That's good enough. That's a satisfactory payment. And because of that, payment for sin, the sins of many will they be, look at that verse where, there, verse number 11, many shall be justified. That's again a, a salvation word, soteriological term to mean declared righteous. When you and I are declared righteous, why? Because we're good? No, because of Jesus' death on the cross. God declares Anyone who would put their faith and trust in Him, if you've been saved or born again, God declares you righteous. Why? Because you're righteous? No, because your sin has been covered. And God doesn't see it anymore. Propitiation. You see, if Jesus is the satisfactory payment for sins and He is of the whole world, there's nothing else that's needed from us. If Jesus has covered my sins and turned away the wrath of God, do you think I get any bonus points for showing up to church once a week? Does that factor into the equation of whether or not I'm forgiven or not? Absolutely not. And again, the idea that you and I could add something of value to the package of salvation for God, it's is frankly blasphemous. I mean, think about it. Jesus, Christ satisfa- Jesus Christ's payment on the cross wasn't good enough for God, so you and I need to add a little something to it to make sure we can go to heaven. It's I talking to people, has, has there been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again? Yeah, I was born again, but i got to make sure that I do my part so I can get to heaven. You have no part, other than faith and repentance. And so again, if Christ has paid my debt, He's paid it in full. Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. I love the song we sing, Glorious Day. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. And one day he's coming, oh, glorious day. You see, when he paid my sin debt, he didn't just pay most over the bulk of it. He paid the entire balance for now and forevermore. You see, I don't come to church because I hope I'll get to heaven I show up to church because I want to worship my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because I'm going to heaven. Different in motiva- difference in motivation there. And you see the great news about this. turn back to, to uh, First John chapter two, if you would. First John chapter two, verse number two. He's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. There's a a false view of salvation out there that basically says that Jesus Christ's blood was only limited to save a few people. The quote, elect, and again, I, I disagree with this view of salvation and the fact that God chose before time began who would go to heaven and who would go to hell but the idea is that God's, Jesus Christ's blood was only enough to save people who were pre-chosen by God, I believe this verse flies in the face of that, that he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. That Jesus could save anybody and no one is beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. No one. Nobody. God can save anybody. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, God can save you. Well, you don't know what I've done. Frankly, I don't care what you've done because God can save you from your sin. God can forgive. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said a curse word around me. They said, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said a curse word around a pastor. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Don't apologize to me. You didn't break my law. Hey, look, the idea is not that you're accountable to me or to anybody else you're accountable to God and God is willing to save you. He's willing to forgive you. And some of us might have people in our lives that we prayed for a really long time that they would be saved. Keep praying because Jesus Christ is the propitiation for their sins too. The only way that they'll find forgiveness is if their sin is covered by Jesus. Keep praying, keep sharing. And here's another thought as well. If you and I realize at Christmas now, we realize that we've received the gifts of propitiation, that that baby in the manger signified for us the forgiveness of our sin, the turning away of God's wrath, the covering of our sin, as if it never happened, what do we do with that? Oh, we, we receive it, good. What do you do with it after that? Now it's time to pass it on. If you really believe that hell's a real place where people die and go to, that should change the way that you live your life. You change your priorities. You change the things you pray for. You change the things that are really important to you. But if you don't think there's really a hell, then, man, no worries. You're good. I grew up in a church that we sang a lot of songs about heaven and talked about how we're going to heaven one day, and we sit back and waited. Hey, you don't get your, get your ticket punched to heaven and sit in the, the waiting room for your ticket to be called. No, if you've accepted Christ as Savior, you've got to pass it on now. The greatest gift that you can give at the Christmas season is to gift to Jesus. these little books in the back called Paid in Full. We got a we got hundred of them probably. Grab one of those, give it to a neighbor with a plate of cookies. Hey, I got this for you and I, this book will change your life. Just read it. It's a really simple explanation of the gospel. That's it. Well, what if they don't read it? That's not up to you. What if they don't believe it? Not up to you. We're just told to, to share truth. And so if I really believe that Jesus Christ is the answer for covering of sin and turning away God's wrath, I want every person on the planet to hear about it. It's too good to keep to myself. Best news you'll ever hear in your entire life. Because it not only changes what happens after you die, it changes everything that happens up until the point that you die. And propitiation allows God to choose love over Wrath. propitiation gives God the propensity to be able to love because God cannot love you to the fullest extent while at the same time punishing you to the degree that you deserve. And so propitiation is such a beautiful Bible thought that we sing about it in many songs that we sing here at Who We Call You. Sometimes you don't even think about it. I love this song, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song this cornerstone, this solid ground, strong in the fiercest doubt and storm. But depths of love, what heights of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the power of Christ I stand. I I love that. There's a verse in there that talks about the wrath of God. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know what Bible word it's talking about there? Propitiation. You saying that? Man, never even thought about that till on that cross as Jesus died, God saw that payment for sin, and he says, that is a satisfactory payment that covers the sin of mankind and turns away my wrath. God says, that's good enough, and Jesus says, it is finished, and he was done. Beautiful. Probably about uh, 2013 time frame, there was a group of Presbyterians that were putting together a a hymnal for their, their organization that they had, or whatever they're called, and they asked for a, a, a lyric change to be made to this song because they didn't like the idea that God would be an angry God. That God was a God of love, not a God of wrath. And so they asked for an amendment to be made to the, song, to the songwriters and the phrase that they changed was, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And so they sent a request to the, uh, the authors of the song, Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend, that the, this change be made only for their hymnal in print. And praise be to God, these guys said, no. You're not changing the words to that song. Because the appeasement of God's wrath is a biblical idea. And you cannot have the love of God without having the wrath of God first. It doesn't work that way. And so I praise God for Christian songwriters who stand by biblical truth. And, and when you sing songs here at Kala, I hope you don't get in the rut of just Christian karaoke or just singing the words that are on the screen. I hope you take time to think about what you're singing. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Kingdom, king, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about the name of Jesus. Every time I sing that, that chorus, I think to myself, neither is there any other name given among men, given among heaven, whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. Only the name of Jesus can save. It's a name above all names. They told Mary and Joseph, you shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I think about that when I sing, there's something about that name. When I think, what a beautiful name, what a wonderful name, what a powerful name, the name of Jesus. I hope as you sing that these songs mean something to you in the depths of your spirit, that it's not a matter of, I'm gonna keep my hands in my pockets and kind of hum along until we can sit down It's a matter of, I get to lift my voices with my brothers and sisters who have also been covered by the blood of Christ. And we get to worship the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world and praise God together corporately. What a gift. As opposed to, how many songs are we going to sing this morning? And let me just tell you this. If you come to here to week after week, and this, I'm not saying this towards anybody, it's not direct to anybody. Look, when I worship the Lord, I stand in the back and I just worship the Lord. I don't care what you're doing. But I want to help you with this. And if you can come here week after week and have your hands in your pockets and not sing praises to God, there's something that's not right in here. And you need to check it because something's broken Because when you hear things like, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, and you can't lift your voice and say, yes, that was my sin that did that, and I'm free from it now. You can't do that. It's just like, "Mm, something's not right somewhere. And you check your heart. And look here, maybe you can't praise God because you've been bumping Eminem and Garth Brooks all week. You know, I don't know. I'm just saying the, the cry of your heart should be a cry of praise and worship for the King and King of the Lord's Lord. That's all. Another song we sing, Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. That song is so rich with biblical truth Romans chapter 5 says, Before we knew Jesus Christ, we were the enemies of God. But now we're adopted sons and daughters seated at his table. You wouldn't invite a friend over for thank- or an enemy over for Thanksgiving dinner to sit at your table. That's reserved for friends and family. But God wouldn't invite you to his table unless you were now his son or daughter. But what made that happen? The wrath of God had to be satisfied first. How was it done? It was through, done through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So, God's gift of love is only available because of his gift of propitiation. Is God a God of love? Definitely, no doubt about it. Is God a God of wrath? Definitely, no doubt about it. And his wrath can be set aside so that he is fully free to love only by propitiation. What a gift. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Last passage of scripture we'll look at this morning. Revelation 5. Revelation chapter 5 is a peek inside the throne room of God. We're believers throughout all of human history, those that have been saved. Would gather together in heaven to sing praise and worship to Jesus Christ. John got to see this with his own eyes. And I can only imagine what it was like for John to be able to stand in the throne room of God and hear the praises of all mankind throughout all of human history praise God together. I can't imagine what it's gonna be like. It's gonna be incredible. And then to get this, John, after he sees all that, has to come back to earth. Well, this is a bummer, right? I can imagine John like marking off his days till he dies. Like, when going I get to go back to that party? Like, well, stuck here on Patmos. What the world? Revelation chapter five, verse number nine. And they sung a new song, saying, "Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us." That's another good salvation, so etiological term. Redeemed us to God. By Thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and beasts and elders; and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, "Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power." And riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, "Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sit upon the throne, and to the Lamb, forever and ever." Man, what a day that's going to be! What a day! But you know what's interesting? It talks about the Lamb that was slain. And I can only imagine those Jews that were so frustrated with the law going, oh, I got it. Those two lambs we took back, that's Jesus. Got it. That blood that was shed, that was a picture of Jesus. That covering, that was a picture of Jesus. The sin being taken out so that God's wrath wouldn't come back, that was all Jesus got it now, and you and I get the benefit of reading the Bible backwards and knowing what we know now, and we can say, that's propitiation right there. And one day, we'll be in heaven praising God for what? For propitiation. Some of you, an hour ago, didn't know what it meant, didn't know why you did it, didn't know what kind of gift it was, but I hope now you can look at this and go, wow, the day that J- Jesus saved me, so many things happened, and so many things took place, that I appreciate what Jesus has done now to a greater degree because I realize that I deserve God's wrath. I deserve God's punishment. But it was turned away because God saw the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm satisfied with that payment. And your sin is covered. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, the most important thing in the world is you would know that your sin is forgiven and heaven is your home. It's not by joining this church. Churches cannot cover anybody's sin if they wanted to. It's not by doing religious works or being baptized or going to a class. You need to know that you've been born again. Jesus says no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. There needs to be a time, a date, a place where you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, where you confessed your sin before God and you were forgiven and covered. If there's never been a time like that for you, let today be that day. What a gift at Christmas time to receive the gift of Jesus. But for those of us that are Christians, those of us that have been saved and born again, let's praise God during this Christmas time for things like propitiation. Let's look at the gift of Christ and not just say, oh, cute little baby in a manger. We can say, no, 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 that baby represents everything that is meaningful in my life. Because all the hope was wrapped up in one baby in swaddling clothes, lied in a manger. The hope for all of mankind and for all of eternity in Jesus Christ